Hello and welcome to a very special edition of Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. We've left our usual haunt of the kitchen table of our sponsors Unbound, the website which brings readers and writers together to create something special. Instead, we're gathered together in the august surroundings of the windowless basement of the legendary Blackwell's Bookshop in the Norrington Room, in front of an erudite, well-read, let's face it, downright ravishing audience. <laughs> I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound. Uh, and I'm Andy Miller. I'm the author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And joining us today are Mark Haddon and Sally Bailey. Could we have a round of applause for two of these people? Mark Haddon is, of course, the author of novels including The Curious Incident, The Dog in the Nighttime, A Spot of Bother, and many books for children. He published a volume of short stories last year called The Pier Falls. And on June the 22nd this year, 2017, the Hogarth Press marks its centenary with a birthday edition of two stories, which was originally the first thing ever published by the Hogarth Press 100 years ago. It featured two stories, one by Virginia Woolf and the other by Leonard Woolf. And the centenary edition, Leonard has been bumped for Mark. <laughs> so we'll talk about that in a minute. And we're also joined by Sally Bailey. Sally is a tutor in English at Balliol and St Hugh's Colleges here in Oxford. Welcome back, Sally. Sally was our guest for our Stevie Smith episode last year. And she is the author of books about Sylvia Plath, The Private Life of the Diary, and the forthcoming The Reading Detective. Actually, it's been renamed. It's called Girl with Dove. Girl with Dove? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, I was about to shower you with praise for the, the title The Reading Detective. <laughs> no, 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 no. It was a terrible title. It is a terrible title, so it's been shoved. <laughs> okay, all right. And Sally is also, she wrote the introduction to the Persephone edition of Virginia Woolf's biography of Elizabeth Barrett Browning's Spaniel Flush, one of the lesser-known Virginia Woolf works. We're going to talk about that later as well. And just must draw attention to this. We're joined by John Mitchinson here in Oxford. As my dad used to say, you always know when someone's been to Oxford because they tell you. <laughs> and I, I, so, so like John went to uh, the University of Oxford here in Oxford, Mark went to the University of Oxford here in Oxford, and Sally is Did not. the U. But you are now a yes. tutor at the University of Oxford. I just like to reassure <laughs> listeners that I didn't go to Oxford <laughs> or Cambridge, and that this is in fact only the fourth time I have ever been to the city of Oxford. And so I'm like the character that you, the listeners, can relate to. Right? I'm like someone like Bilbo Baggins. <laughs> uh, I'm, a, I'm a long way from the Shire <laughs> with these, these, these inhabitants yeah, of Riven down You're not here. in Toto now, Andy. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I'm not in Kansas. Kansas not in Kansas now, anymore. Toto. Yeah, sorry. So, uh, so Toto. I'm not in Toto. <laughs> oh, no, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the, uh, sorry, it's the bestiality this joke is, that went wrong. This is, <laughs> this is how we distinguish ourselves from the TLS. <laughs> So, so, so very, very easily. I should just for, you know, what's it called? Full disclosure. Yeah. It, it, not only did Mark and I both attend the University of Oxford, we were both members of the same college, Merton College, although we didn't really know each other. I had a very nice cream tea did at you? the Grand Café oh, this yes. afternoon. Is that somewhere you used to go when you were undergraduates? That's the old Frank Cooper's marmalade shop in That's the right. High Street, yeah. 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 No. <laughs> <laughs> Afternoon tea. I did, I took it tea. It was the 80s, man. We were, 
We went to Raoul's, the cocktail bar in Walton Street. That's where we used to go to. Am I not right? <laughs> also, I should say that I was at, when I was at Oxford, at half my life, I was a barman at Brown's. So I had a kind of weird town gown sort of double life. And one of my great friends, the former head barman of Brown's, Joe Narmed is in the audience, I notice. Wow. This Did is the, like a the, psychogeographical trip <laughs> through pages yeah, of your past. Small town. Anyway, what were you, you were going to ask me a question, weren't you? Checks notes. <laughs> John, <laughs> what have you been reading this week? Ah, glad you asked me that. Unexpected question. <laughs> I have been reading this week a really very, very, very compelling memoir by a, a, a curious man called Dexter Petley. It's called, great title in my view, Love Madness Fishing. Dexter Petley is a fisherman, fairly obviously, but he's also a novelist and a pretty good novelist. He grew up in the Weald of Kent in the early 60s. It's a memoir of growing up in the early 60s through kind of into the 70s. And of its kind, it's as good as anything I've read. It's, it's, uh, I don't know, I'm reading it sort of in a weird way with a, a lot of the Brexit news stories going on. And this is a, a, a world, rural England, rural council estates, where secondary modern schools, where you were taught how to make compost and how to, how to t take the testicles off sheep. I mean, it's kind of a lost world now. And it was a sort of already a slightly sentimental view of the countryside. Mm -hmm. He writes movingly about his, both his parents, who were deeply dysfunctional, damaged by the war. His father was a New Zealander. And this community was basically a small community of, of people, all who'd been demobbed, who didn't really have any skills, who fixed old cars clinging on to kind of old values that men who'd go gardening with a sort of a waistcoat and tie on that kind of strange <laughs> what i approve anyway the, the the book is it's quite powerfully written very well remembered it's 15 chapters and it's basically his his passage from being a small uh, small boy fishing is the thing that saves him and it, he writes about fishing there's a particularly brilliant piece on a on an invented guy called crabtree and crabtree was like the sort of the the expert who wrote for a daily newspaper, completely invented human being. And Crabtree had a son, and the son was in... It's all about class. I mean, coarse fishing in canals for gudgeon and tench was considered really, really low-grade, which the kind of fishing that Dexter Petley started out doing. He now lives wild. This is the other thing I knew. One thing I knew about yeah. him is Matthew Clayton, our erstwhile bat-listed team member, introduced me to his work, and he'd, he'd done a Q&A with him at a festival. He said, you know, apart from smelling a, a little odd he, he lives he lives wild in, a, in 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 sort of tents and caravans in rural france and uh, it says it says here he currently lives in a normandy forest <laughs> where he keeps chickens and grows vegetables living off rainwater and editing fiction which might be <laughs> might be my favorite line ever in a biography have you read any of his um, fiction? No, and I'm going to. I mean, he writes really well. I thought I might do just one paragraph just to give you I a just before you, before you Before you read that bit, I just wanted to say, I remember I used to work with someone who published um, Dexter Petley's first novel, which was called Joyride. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, that was 20 years ago. And even then, at editorial meetings, the, when the progress report was asked for, any word from Dexter, no, he was last spotted six months ago <laughs> <laughs> on the banks of the Tay. I just feel it's it's as it really it's a really interesting book if you want to understand that particular yeah. rural. It's nature writing. It's got a real edge to it. I'll just read you this bit about childhood. This is about the fact that he fishing surprise surprise begins to take second place to girls. Happens to us all, sadly. Childhood ends in breakdown. Ceases in a confused and crumpled mess. 
an invisible marriage of love, childhood is the perfect union with yourself and a pact with the universe. But when it's over, it's dead. Worse, it drags more failure with it than any period of adulthood. You have to live with the shame, the broken toys, the despised books, the lost friends, the shrinking clothes, objects which only serve to capture that awkward passage. Suddenly, lies matter. Suddenly, truth matters. And conflict wakes to ruin everything. Worst of all, you go down to the pond with your old rod and stare at the water. All you see is brown boredom. It has nothing left to say. You're 16 and the pond is over. The pond you knew like your bedroom wall. This pond is now an, as embarrassing as the felt-tip freaks around your bed, the ones you copied from bubblegum cards when you were 11. Nostalgia for the moment is a pit of hell. Fishing there takes back all it is given. The existential intervenes, and you cast hope into nothingness. Ooh. Quite cheerful. <laughs> oh. uh, Little Toller published that, and yep. also the cover is superb. Dexter does his own... Uh, he does his own paintings as well. It's as good a memoir of growing up in rural England as I've read in a very, very long time. And as you know, I do slightly specialise in that. <laughs> Andy, what have you been reading? I've been reading a book... I've been waiting to talk about this book for a couple of months. So I've been reading a book called The Lucky Ones by a writer called Julianne Pacheco. And I never would have encountered this book had I not been asked to interview her at a festival earlier this year. I started reading the book, and by a, the halfway point, I was thinking, wow, this is the best new thing that I've read this year. That's a bit of luck, because I've <laughs> got to ask her some questions about it. I read to the end, I thought, God, this is so fantastic. This is like a novel, but it's not a novel. Um, which we'll come on to in a minute. So then I went to have a look and see what other people had been saying about it. And there was a review in The New Yorker, and she's had stories in The New Yorker, and there was a review in The New York Times, which I'm just going to read a tiny bit of in a moment. But there were, and have been, to my knowledge, no reviews of this book in any UK Mainstream. magazines yeah. or newspapers. Now, and that's not a criticism of anyone, I hasten to add, it is increasingly tough to get that kind of coverage. But what you realise is that a genuinely, a book about which you feel genuinely passionate, which excites you and which enthuses you and all those things that you look for from new writing and new books can just be hiding in plain sight and can just pass, perhaps unseen. It was this review in the New York Times was by Silvana Paternostro, who is herself Colombian, Julianne Pacheco is a Colombian writer who now lives here in the UK. Is it translated or is it? No, it's in, no, it's in English. English. And the thing you need to know about this book is that it was published in the States as a novel and here in the UK as short stories. And publishing decision, as Douglas Adams said, publishing is a subject that is fraught with interest. <laughs> <laughs> we could debate those decisions in the States and over here. I read it as a novel. For me, it was read as a novel. It's linked by theme and character, and you have to have your wits about you, but it's a series of short stories that add up to a novel and could and should be read as a novel. This is what Silvana Paternostro said in the New York Times. Pacheco's characters are all seductive, but what really drew me in is her ability to describe emotions. The book opens inside the privileged house of Stephanie Lansky saying goodbye to her parents. She can't wait to spend the weekend on her own. By page five, the teenager's idea of the perfect plan turns into a horror film. She knows that the stranger ringing the doorbell could be there to yank her away. 
Pacheco conveys the fear that Colombian children grow up with. She made that pit in my stomach open up again. Next, she takes us deep into the jungle inside the head of a kidnapped American teacher who, to control impending madness, resorts to teaching Hamlet to a class of twigs and rocks. Then it's a love story between two outsiders in Stephanie's elite school, a scholarship boy and the chubby daughter of a drug kingpin who keeps a lion in his backyard. We then endure a chapter in which descendants of the girl's coke-addicted pet rabbit start speaking to one another, etc., etc. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read you a short bit. I'm going to read you from that opening story, the horror movie. This is how the book effectively starts. She doesn't wake up till mid-morning. Back in the kitchen, she opens the refrigerator and drinks directly from the pitcher of lemonade, careful not to bang her teeth against the ceramic. As she puts the pitcher on the counter, there's a loud blast of the doorbell. It echoes through the house, followed by six blunt buzzes, as though it's a signal she should recognise. Angelina! She calls out. She waits, but there's no sound of sandals slapping against the floor tiles heading to the front door. The buzzing is long and sustained this time. Christ, she says, Angelina! When she was very young, she would stand in the middle of a room and scream Angelina's name over and over again, not stopping until Angelina came running, apron flying out behind her. But that's not the kind of simly, silly, immature thing she would do now. She opens the door. Standing a few steps away in the front yard is a man. He's grinning in a way that makes him look slightly embarrassed, rocking on his heels, arms behind his back. There's a lumpy, purplish-red scar running down his face from the bottom of his eye to the top of his lip. Well, here I am, he says. Let's go. He's wearing a shapeless brown poncho which hangs off him as if empty. His feet are bare and caked in red clay, his legs thin and hairless. Sorry I'm late, he says. He brings an arm forward, a dirty plastic bag hanging from his wrist. It took me a lot longer to get here than I thought. I came as fast as I could. He stares at the plastic bag, which sways back and forth, hitting the front of his thigh. Lord, am I thirsty, he says. Does that ever happen to you when you have to walk a long way? He licks his lips. Never mind. Don't worry about answering now. We'll have time to talk later. Can I help you, she says, taking a step back. The man's face suddenly becomes a mass of deeply ingrained lines. Didn't she tell you I was coming? His voice comes out high-pitched and sad, in a way that sounds deeply familiar to her, like something she's been listening to her whole life, though she cannot say why or how. Daddy! She calls out over her shoulder, her voice echoing down the hallway. There's somebody here to see you. Princess, he says, the lines in his face growing even deeper. Come on, don't do that. You know I know they're not here. Okay, so that is the opening story, right? Isn't that great? I cannot recommend this book highly enough. I absolutely Loved it. I'm evangelical about it. Excellent. We'll be back in just a sec. So uh, we've talked about what we've been reading, but we are here to discuss Virginia Woolf's third novel, Jacob's Room. How many people here at Blackwell's in Oxford have read Jacob's Room? As usual, everyone has read it. That is amazing. Uh, no, I would say about half the people here have yeah, read it. That's amazing. very good. Yeah. There's a slightly thin patch over yeah. here. Yeah. 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 
<laughs> was there a sort of are you with the bride or groom type question on the way in? Um, had you read it? No, I hadn't read it. I'm going to, you know what? We've talked enough. I will give yeah, you, no. I will give you a potted history of my, my 30 year non-relationship with Virginia Woolf later on. Right. But let's turn to our guests, Mark and Sally. And Mark, we normally, the first thing we ask people on Backlisted is, when did you first read Jacob's Room? I simply cannot remember because I've read it about 10, 11, 12 times. And I think the mark of a good book is you disappear into it and you have absolutely no idea what else is going on in the rest of your life. Wherever I was, I was not there at the time. Great non-answer. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Sally? Um, I knew you were going to ask this question. So um, I actually read it, I think, too young. I read it in the Brighton Public Library when I was 16. And I'm sure I know I didn't get it. But I have taught this book to several students and actually as a teacher you remember vividly um, how you have interacted with a book but thanks to Mark and this podcast I have been reading this book through the night and I am very tired and I'm quite devastated (laughs) Mark (laughs) so you have a lot to answer for my apologies and and I'm about to say that in some respects it's a a profoundly consoling book that I find Mm. a very positive experience so we can argue about that later. Yeah. Well, my mood was like this throughout the whole night. I had to make tea. I had to go and get Fortnum and Mason's tea out about 4.30 in the morning um, and have about 10 cups of it. So, Mark, do you want to say a little bit about, for those the three people who For the three people in the audience and, and from our huge... And for, and for, glo- our, for the global audience from Taipei global, to Vancouver. For, for the global listening base. So, uh, in, in brief, it's, a, it's quite a short novel and it is sort of about the life of Jacob Flanders who uh, is born at the end of the 19th century, to um, the widowed Mrs. Flanders, who's a sort of distressed upper-middle-class lady who lives in Scarborough. We meet him first on a family holiday on the beach, then we see him going up to Cambridge, then we see him moving to London, where he lives in Gray's Inn, and we see him involved with various women. Then we follow him on a grand tour from Paris through Italy to Greece. And then most people will tell you that he dies in the First World War. I completely disagree with that. We can have a good argument about that later on. However, the Wait, idea... Uh, what, what? <laughs> let, me, let me stop you there. <laughs> Are you saying that he doesn't die in the First World War or he doesn't die? OK. <laughs> and again, on, again on sorry, everyone, we got berated this week for spoilers, but, yeah. you know, um, it's, been a, it's been around for nearly 100 years. Look, yeah. Even on the front of this edition, the vintage classics edition I'm holding, he's in, he's in a, he's in a mm. uniform on the cover. I think yeah. it's... OK, two things. One, I think it's a slight offence to the sort of profound and sublime ambiguity of the whole book mm. to say, yeah. this is what happens mm. at the end. Good. Good. And I, I'm with you. What I should say is, when I say it's about Jacob Flanders, one of the pieces of genius about the book is it's about everything around him. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of existential polo of a novel. There's this sort of strange hole in the middle... <laughs> Brilliant. We yeah. see the people he interacts with. We see their interactions with third parties. We see mm-hmm. his rooms, the objects around him. We hear him sometimes. We see his friends. But there's this strange emptiness mm-hmm. in the middle of the whole story. So it was published in 1922, which for some people is the, the high watermark of literary modernism, the same year that Ulysses and The Wasteland were published. Mm-hmm. And it's nearly always slipped into third place. You can argue about the first two places, but <laughs> poor Jacob's Room is always in third, partly because of Virginia Woolf's own estimation of the novel, which was quite low. She saw it as experimental, slightly transitional, on the way to mm. Mrs. Dalloway uh, and to the lighthouse. 
And partly because Ulysses and the Wasteland, they're these kind of big mansplaining type works, aren't they? <laughs> I always think they're a bit like the Pompidou Centre. They've got all the tubing on the outside. <laughs> they're tailor-made for writing a really good undergraduate essay about them, because they, they say exactly mm. what they're about, and they give you all the themes. Whereas there's something extremely kind of elusive and evasive about what is wonderful about Jacob's Room. Over the years, since I did my degree, Ulysses and the Wasteland have sort of slipped a bit, and, and, and Jacob's Room has sort of come up from behind. I think all three books are a reaction to two big things that were happening at the time. One is the, the First World War, and maybe the Spanish flu that came after it. The huge, violent sort of earthquakes in civilization. The idea that society could be literally torn apart. Huge numbers of people could die, and we had no control over it. And civilization was kind of imperiled. And under, underneath that, this sort of even more scary intellectual sort of earthquake, a sort of post-Nietzschean idea that God was dead, absolute value was dead, there was no absolute good or bad, right or wrong, it was just what different groups of, of people felt. And they often disagreed, and they often went to war about what they disagreed. I think all three works are a reaction to that. You know, in, in The Wasteland, Eliot says, these fragments I have shored against my ruin. And at university, you, you learn that those are sort of radical, taken-apart works, which mm. try and respond to a radical, taken-apart world. When I look at those works now, I just look at how incredibly structured they are, mm -hmm. how they link everything to the deep past and to high culture. And to me, it looks like both men have, have put up these tents and they've hammered them down really, really mm -hmm. hard because on account of this biting, cold, existential wind that is threatening to rip them off and send them into the void. And they, there's something frightened about the works. Something about Jacob's Room. Wolf takes on board this idea that all, all ideas are relative uh, and all ideas, just, they're just human inventions. And she takes it to the absolute limit and she says, what if even human identity, that idea of being a single person, is in fact just, just a human invention? And she writes a book as if identity is an invention, as if Jacob is just the sum of all the things that happen to Jacob's body as he moves through the world. And if you accept it as a positive thing as opposed to a negative thing, some people read it and say it's all about how we can never know someone. I read it as, as a new way of looking at human beings. And if you read it in that way, it comes up with an almost Buddhist idea of what it means to be a human being. You're just all these events, sensations, and happenings that have, like, exist in a cloud around the body that carries the name of Jacob. And I find that profoundly consoling. Mm. You know, what you just said really reminds me of... I remember watching a film about Andy Warhol about ten years ago, and in the film they said, if you want to understand Warhol, you have to understand the context in which Warhol was producing material. The context was fundamentally male, expressionist, and heterosexual. Everything had to be sweated over and wrestled from the gut, not mass-produced in a slightly effete manner as though it didn't matter. And the difference you've just been talking about, it seems to me, is similar in a way. You know, there's a kind of male expressionism going on with both... Joyce and Eliot, and of course with Wolf, it's female and it's impressionism. Many of the reviews at the time of Jacob's Room, seeking to understand it, will say, we'll talk about it in terms of painting and impressionist painting, which by the 1920s people had begun to assimilate and understand and refer to in those terms. 
At the same time, I would say though that Wolf, um, Wolf is still very much attached to the Victorian age, and I would read this actually as it's rereading it um, in the middle of the night, uh, like Mr. Carmichael in um, To the Lighthouse, um, in parentheses. Um, I felt as though Jane Austen was everywhere. She's everywhere. Um, the captains, Barfoot and, and um, mm. Seagrove, who's, uh, Seabrook, who's, um, who's, who's been lost at sea. So I've just read Persuasion. I've just come out of Persuasion, and it's so similar to, to that novel. And, of course, it's also um, suffused with um, fragments of biography all over the place, which she inherits from her father. For me, it's a book about um, lost eras, the Renaissance, the 18th century, and the Victorian era. So I don't read it as a modern book at all. I read it as an as a elegy to to other eras, um, other times. So and I think, yeah, the servant glass carry that, I yeah. think, perfectly well. But I, I love this idea that it's kind of a field. I completely loved it, and I'm, I'm really pleased that you kind of... I, I think that thing about pinning down, mm -hmm. I mean, she sort of pins things down to the, you know, the idea of a day in, into the lighthouse and Mrs. Dalloway. And I think what's amazing about this book and why it's kind of... It, she says something beautiful about it in her diary. I figure that the approach will be entirely different this time. No scaffolding, scarcely a brick to be seen, all crepuscular, but the heart, the passion, humour, everything as bright as fire in the mist. Which is, and that image of fire in the mist, this book is full of people opening windows, of, mm. of lamplight, of the, the greasy light of, of things. It's a, very, it's a much more London novel than I was expecting. I think what you're not able to ever quite get a, a grip on is where the book is going or where it's coming from. It's not a book that you read sequentially for plot, as you say, although that sort of is there. But it, it's all the things, as you say, around the centre. I, I found really, really, I will read it again. S Sally, have you got something there? I can see you looking at something yes, to read. I do want to read something. And I want to just, um, maybe just to turn over a little bit, what Mark was saying about the idea of Jacob as, obviously it's, you know, it's, a, it's an elegy, in a sense, to um, a life that is not finished in some way. And I agree with you, we don't know how, how it ends. But it's, it's suffused with endings, or with half endings, or with pauses in people's lives. Uh, and the way I was reading it... Um, Premonitions of death. Yes, well, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and hesitations, moments of hesitation, or choice, or deliberation. And there are these the lost moments, um, paragraph to paragraph, that, which I kept returning to. And I turned over the pages, actually, um, and I, I kept wanting to make tabs on the pages. I wanted to make shapes and corners and tabs, and I felt as though there's a sense in which um, Wolf, as a writer, has this very strong relationship with paper, um, with paper consciousness, and I just kept mm. feeling paper. So I wanted to, to um, destroy the book, and I started doing that. I started destroying the book in the middle of the night. And I kept looking and searching for these lost pools of life. And one of the most moving moments um, is this... Two paragraphs. Mrs. Jarvis, who is the, um, the rector's wife, the clergyman's wife. People are going off for walks all the time as well to deliberate what they might do next, um, as they do in Jane Austen. In Jane Austen, everyone, it all rounds up nicely and we get married. But Mrs. Jarvis goes out um, under the moonlight to think about what she might have been. And it's just two paragraphs, and I'd like to read that to you. Mrs. Jarvis walked on the moor when she was unhappy going as far as a certain saucer-shaped hollow, though she always meant to go to a more distant ridge. And there she sat down and took out the little book hidden beneath her cloak and read a few lines of poetry and looked about her. She was not very unhappy, 
and seeing that she was 45, never perhaps would be very unhappy, desperately unhappy, that is, and leave her husband and ruin a good man's career, as she sometimes threatened. Still, there is no need to say what risks a clergyman's wife runs when she walks on the moor. Short, dark, with kindling eyes, a pheasant's feather in her hat, Mrs Jarvis was just the sort of woman to lose her faith upon the moors, to confound her God with the universal that is. But she did not lose her faith, did not leave her husband, never read her poem through, and went on walking the moors, looking at the moon behind the elm trees and feeling as she sat on the grass high above Scarborough, Yes, yes, when the lark soars, when the sheep, moving a step or two onwards, crop the turf, and at the same time set their bells tinkling. When the breeze first blows, then dies down, leaving the cheek kissed. When the ships on the sea below seem to cross each other and pass as if drawn by an invisible hand. When there are distant concussions in the air and phantom horsemen galloping, ceasing. When the horizon swims, blue, green, emotional. Then Mrs Jarvis, heaving a sigh, thinks to herself, if only someone could give me, if I could give someone. But she does not know what she wants to give, nor who could give it her. Yes. I mean, that reminds me of something else that happens repeatedly through the mm -hmm. book, like a refrain. Yeah. Part of the time you're in the complications, the irresolvable complications of human life, and then you go back to the moors, mm -hmm. night time, mm -hmm. to views of the ocean, yeah. to this, to nature which is disinterested and uninterested in human mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. And it sort of restores mm -hmm. you before the next journey into the busyness of human life. Mm -hmm. You were saying, Sally, about... Uh, the relationship with paper. Mm. I hadn't appreciated until I w was reading Jacob's Room and other books by Wolf in the last month or so, how much of her writing is dependent on, tied up with, inspired by, the flip side of reading. Mm. Absolutely. I cannot think of another writer who is so able to bring writing and reading so closely together all the time in, the, in, in their fiction. Can she you? Was, she was, yeah, she was kind of self-taught, really, wasn't she? Mm -hmm. She sort of had the run of her father's library, so that, that, that kind of you felt that the conceived of herself as a writer as a very early, a, a very early well, age. Well, we, we've got a clip of Nigel Nicholson, the son of Vita Sackville West, reminiscing about where Wolfe... So I make myself laugh. I try not to say got her ideas from. <laughs> where do you, where'd you get your where, ideas where, from, where Virginia? Where would yeah. you get your ideas from? My mother would say, Virginia's coming for the night. Our immediate reaction was, oh, good. And then she would sit us down and interrogate us. I remember once she said, what has happened to you this morning? And I would reply, well, nothing. Oh, come on, come on, she would say. What woke you up? And I would reply, it was the sun, the sun coming through our bedroom window. What sort of a sun, she would say. A kindly sun, angry sun? We would answer that in some way. Then she was fascinated by the detail of 
how we dressed. Of course, what she was doing was um, gathering copy. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, if you think he sounds posh, wait till you hear Virginia herself. Yeah. We, 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 maybe we do have a clip of Virginia herself. I was just yeah. going to say that reminded me of what, for me, is one of the sort of key passages in Wolf, and I think it's from Moments of Being, and she's remembering being in the nursery mm. in Talland House, which is where the family decamped um, every summer, for, I think for a fortnight, uh, in St Ives. Mm. And she describes lying sort of half asleep in her bedroom with light coming through the blind, the wind gently moving the blind backwards and forwards and dragging this little wooden acorn on the string at the bottom of the blind backwards and forwards over the floorboard. And she says something like the sensation, as I remember, of lying inside this, the yellow skin of a semi-transparent grape <laughs> and uh, looking at the light and listening to the noise outside. And that sense of sort of utterly at home but excluded but safe but on the other side of a membrane, because mm. her work is full of windows yeah. and doors and membranes mm. of one kind or another. Uh, and and she says, I think she says something like, if there is a bowl which fills endlessly and which we draw upon in our lives, this is, this is the bowl from which mm. I draw endlessly. That image of being inside a safe nursery with the light coming through the blinds. Now, normally we would offer a biographical recap for the author that we feature <laughs> on Backlisted, but we didn't really feel it was appropriate that. because people have, you know about Virginia Woolf, right? All these people here do, because they are top table. Nice, but, nicely done, Andy. Thank you. I like the reference. Um, yeah. <laughs> thank you, indeed. But the only biographical point that I would like to draw attention to, which I was, I don't think I really appreciated before this last month or so, is that Woolf writes this incredible run of novels and non-fiction and stories in a 10-year period, basically the 1920s. Jacob's Room is written 1920-21 to The Waves and Flush is 31, and that coincides with her 40s. I hadn't really appreciated that what you're looking at when you look at Jacob's Room, then Mrs Dalloway, then to the lighthouse, A Room of One's Own, Orlando, The Waves, Flush... That's a 10-year hot streak, unlike anything else. Can you think of anything? The Beatles. The Beatles, yeah. <laughs> yeah it was just, it was just literally. You know you mustn't tempt me into making these, no, no, no. these but the waves but is like in, a whiteout. In, in terms of that, you know, what you might call, what, uh, you might call the, the spirit wind, you know, your period of maximum creativity where everything... She lived until 41. She died in 41. Right. Yeah. And it was a, part of the thing, I, I, reading this, is I, and I, I love what you say. I think in many ways, Mark, you're, you're right about it being a consoling book, largely because the language is so exquisite. And you said, I mean, you, this is a book you could give to anybody and say, open on a page on random and you will find something brilliant. We'll get some of your stuff in a moment. It's just that, that sense of the, the continual having one skin too few. I, I love her continual kind of identification with the moth and the use of moths and the idea of moths being attracted to the light. But also she quite often talks about her antennae and that it's almost the inability to, to turn that off, that sense of feeling of, of moving and flitting from one consciousness to another consciousness. I mean, her, her, so as a, as a writer for anybody who's interested in, in the psychopathology of mental illness or su survival, she's, she, she's kind of key. It's interesting because I think on the one hand, we talk what Mark was just saying about the the bowl, the image of the bowl and of light and the the translucent uh, form that the grape is, this small detailed uh, form or carapace of memory and thinking. So she's interested in surfaces that allow things to, to move through, to put it basically. But at the same time, she's very interested in the firm, in things that are very firm. 
Um, and I think when you read her sentences, although I stumbled over one, it's because of her insistent use on semicolons. So after a while, you're just like, semicolon, 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 ellipsis, ellipsis, ellipsis. And it's like a kind of mad landscape coming at you, and you just can't quite get there. But um, she has this interesting relationship, I think, to sentence structure, which I think, Mark, maybe you interest, well, interest all people who write and read. And I wonder, when I was reading out loud, um, I, I'm slipping back into the voice in my head, which was reading in the middle of the night. And it felt very firm. But when I read it in public, I'm jolted about. And it's difficult to read. I don't know how you feel about well, that. Well, maybe this is the moment. So if I take yeah. one of my favourite passages yeah. just to talk you through it, if that's OK. Yeah, yeah. great. It's very easy with Wolf to slip yeah. into talking about sensations, impressionism, mm. yeah, sensuality, exactly. and suggest that she's a sort of nice lady yeah. writer who's in touch with her feelings. Whereas she really gets under the bonnet. And she, yeah. her yeah. craft is really... Totally. Is yeah. it? So this is just before um, when Jacob is going up to Cambridge. Mm. And it, this goes back to Jane Austen as well, not yeah. in a subject sense, yeah. although I know what you mean, yeah. but in terms of technical sense. Yeah. They say the sky is the same everywhere. Mm. Travellers, the shipwrecked, exiles and the dying draw comfort from the thought. And no doubt, if you are of a mystical tendency, consolation and even explanation shower down from the unbroken surface. But above Cambridge, anyhow, above the roof of King's College Chapel, there is a difference. Out at sea, a great city will cast a brightness into the night. Is it fanciful to suppose the sky washed into the crevices of King's College Chapel lighter, thinner, more sparkling than the sky elsewhere? Mm. It's just like the opening of Pride and Prejudice. You know, and this is a truth university acknowledge. Mm. We know that she knows it's not a truth universal mm -hmm. knowledge. That's part of the joke. So she's enjoying the idea, but we also know she disagrees with the idea, and she's gently mocking it. So we've got Austin there. Mm -hmm. Then after a few more paragraphs, this comes. If you stand a lantern under a tree, every insect in the forest creeps up to it, a curious assembly, since though they scramble and swing and knock their heads against the glass, they seem to have no purpose. It's one of those extended metaphors, like you get in George Eliot. But then because it's wolf, the extended metaphors takes, starts taking on this life of its own. Something senseless inspires them. One gets tired of watching them as they amble round the lantern and blindly tap as if for admittance, one large toad being the most besotted of any and shouldering his way through the rest. It, it's like she's lost control of this <laughs> image she's had, and it's taking on life of its own. Uh, but we sort of still know what's happening. And then something very odd happens. She said, ah, but what's that? A terrifying volley of pistol shots ring out, cracks sharply, ripples spread, silence laps smooth over the sound. A tree, a tree has fallen, a sort of death in the forest. After that, the wind in the trees sounds melancholy. It's like as a wormhole has opened up on the page. <laughs> yes, yes. And it's, and it's not simply that... Right. And let, me, actually, let me just go into the next paragraph, because then we, the, the brackets are closed, and she comes back to talking about Cambridge. But this service in King's College Chapel, why allow women to take part in it? It's not... She is the queen of the dog leg. I mean, that's a, that's a rather basic way of putting it. <laughs> Lots of new, new cover quote for Jacob Green. <laughs> Other writers are very good at swiftly changing point of view, at yeah. moving from, from past to future and back again, or even changing tone. She's the only novelist I know who changes genre and idiom regularly in the same paragraph. Yeah. She'll be describing, then she'll be talking about writing, and then she'll be mocking what she's she's written before, then she'll, be, mm, she'll yeah. have these sort of cadenzas which just take off in the middle of it. I think the thing that really, that really, coming off that, the thing that really struck me with this book is how she manages to be so present in it 
as her personality, the personality of the writer, is felt very strongly by, as you say, Mark, this constant process of coming to and from an acknowledgement of what she's doing while she's yeah. doing it. And, you know, and, that's and not that, a modernist technique, yeah, is it? That's, a no, te that's I mean, an extension of, it's very, of that, that's writing sort of, personality. Absolutely. It's sort of, and it, even older, I think sort of 18th century, those kind of, you know, rhetorical openings, which she does all the time, is, you know, the, the problem is insoluble. Let us consider letters. You know, it's... it's it's, there's, there's that kind of it, that that isn't particularly you know you wouldn't get that in Joyce you wouldn't get that in a, in, in. She has a kind she has a kind of um, confidence I think in imagery and metaphors as living things they're organisms so she she gives mm. us an environment she says this is the environment we're in and I now want you to watch something in this environment and you you start watching it and as you as you watch it you then start to watch something else watching it and then something mm. else watching it watching it um, and before you know it you've traveled quite far from your yes. original image and the way I the way I think of it is the opening image of Mrs Flanders with her pen and ink and as a very bad handwriter myself I think that's a very precarious image you know the idea of the ink seeping through the paper again and the and the nib of the pen touching the surface of the paper, paper yeah. and that kind of that raw shash blots that that spread and ooze of ink and I think that's how she that's how she sees images but she has a confidence that they will travel somewhere somewhere good. I'm just going to read that bit actually because mm. you, I think you're so right Sally this is how the novel starts so of course wrote Betty Flanders mm. pressing her heels rather deeper in the sand there was nothing for it but to leave mm. slowly welling from the point of her gold nib pale blue ink dissolved the full stop for there her pen stuck her eyes fixed and tears slowly filled them the entire bay quivered, the lighthouse wobbled, and she had the illusion that the mast of Mr. Connor's little yacht was bending like a wax candle in the sun. She winked quickly. Accidents were awful things. She winked again. The mast was straight. The waves were regular. The lighthouse was upright, but the blot had spread. That's so beautiful. As, and as a way to enter a story. So, so... I, I want a better word than clever, but <laughs> I'm going for clever. I think there's another problem talking about this book, and it's a problem we have in general talking about literature, that um, what drives us is reading pleasure. But there's very little you can say directly about reading pleasure, apart from, here's the book, read it. See the bits that I've underlined. Yeah. Don't you agree with me? <laughs> and this, more than almost any other book, yeah. makes me want to do that. Yeah. Let's stop talking. Just go, just go and read it, yeah, and we yeah. can go and compare our favourite bits. We've built this up substantially, but let's now listen to the only uh, recording that exists of um, Virginia Woolf speaking. This is from a BBC radio broadcast which was made on April the 29th, 1937, from a talk called Craftsmanship, and it was part of a series entitled Words Fail Me. Do we write better? Do we read better than we read and wrote 400 years ago when we were unlectured, uncriticised, untaught? Is our modern Georgian literature a patch on the Elizabethan? Well... Where are we to lay the blame? Not on our professors, not on our reviewers, 
not on our writers, but on words. It is words that are to blame. They are the wildest, freest, most irresponsible, most unteachable of all things. Of course, you can catch them and sort them and place them in alphabetical order, in dictionaries. But words do not live in dictionaries. They live in the mind. If you want proof of this, consider how often, in moments of emotion, when we most need words, we find none. Yet there is a dictionary. They are at our disposal of some half million words, all in alphabetical order. But can we use them? No, because words do not live in dictionaries, they live in the mind. Almost <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> she, uh, I was wondering if we, because we've, we've been so nice to the book and so nice to her so far, I mean, she was a pretty terrible snob. Okay, so I, I've got, this is my moment to say this. In the last six weeks, I have read or reread half a dozen books by Virginia Woolf. And I did it because I could. And it's been the most rewarding reading experience I've had since I did the reading for my book, The Year of Reading Dangerously. I consider it a great gift to have returned to Wolf for the first time in 30 years and suddenly find this incredible run of yeah. books that I was talking about and feeling that they weren't a chore, but that, that, that each one was building on the previous one in terms of the reading experience. And... I just wanted to say that to listeners and to, to I said earlier, didn't I, that I was the relatable figure in this lineup uh, tonight in terms of my experience of Wolf. I think Wolf is seeing as be, being very intimidating. I read Mrs. Dalloway and uh, To the Lighthouse 30 years ago when I was a student. Uh, I read To the Lighthouse on February the 5th, 1987. <laughs> in the gardens, Sally, of the Brighton Pavilion. Very opposite, opposite library. Exactly. Waiting for Elvis Costello to turn <laughs> up. <laughs> because he and the Confederates were playing a gig at the Dome that night. He turned up about four o'clock and I'd read to the lighthouse in a day. And I said to Elvis Costello, can we come into the sound check? And he said, yes. And there was a pause. And I went, I've just read to the lighthouse. And he gave me a look, and I said, I haven't got anything else for you to sign. Will you sign it? <laughs> so so I, my copy of To the Lighthouse, which I didn't understand, as if to underline that, is signed by Elvis Costello. Uh, <laughs> and, and, I, and I've lost it. So I read two novels by Virginia Woolf. I didn't really understand them. I was 19. It was pointless, pointless exercise. And then in 1992, I read a book by John Kerry called The Intellectuals and the Masses, one of, the, one of my favourite books, and it put me off reading any more Virginia Woolf <laughs> until now. I've just got to read one little bit. So The Intellectuals and the Masses is an, a notorious book, I think. It was in, when it was published 25 years ago, about how modernism is the expression of snobbery. And I'm just going to read you this one little bit which I remember reading and guffawing with laughter at the time. Intellectuals could not, of course, actually prevent the masses from attaining literacy, but they could prevent them reading literature by making it too difficult for them to understand. <laughs> and this is what they did. The early 20th century saw a determined effort on the part of the European intelligentsia to exclude the masses from culture. In England, this movement has become known as modernism. 
In other European countries, it was given different names, but the ingredients were essentially similar, and they revolutionised the visual arts as well as literature. Realism of the sort that it was assumed the masses appreciated was abandoned. So was logical coherence. Irrationality and obscurity were cultivated. Poets in our civilization, as it exists at present, must be difficult, decreed T.S. Eliot. How deliberate this process of alienating the mass audience was is, of course, problematic and no doubt differed from case to case. But the placing of art beyond the reach of the mass was certainly deliberate at times. And Professor Carey goes on to talk about, in one of the greatest pieces of literary criticism ever, he talks about uh, Howard's End by E.M. Forster, and he says, E.M. Forster hates jumped-up, working-class, self-educating clerks so much that he invents the character of Leonard Bast, who he can then kill at the end of the book <laughs> by having a bookshelf fall on him as symbolic of his presumption. And then he extrapolates, he then moves on to Virginia Woolf. I'm going to read you what he says about Virginia Woolf. He talks about the character of Doris Kilman in the novel Mrs. Dalloway. Miss Kilman is employed by the wealthy Dalloways to tutor their daughter Elizabeth. Though she is poor, Miss Kilman is independent and has gained a degree in history. She is, in other words, just the sort of woman Virginia Woolf as a campaigning feminist might be expected to champion. But the social prejudices of an upper-middle-class intellectual prove stronger than feminism. <laughs> and Miss Kilman is depicted as a monster of spite, envy and unfulfilled desire. She is plain and middle-aged. She wears a cheap green Macintosh. She perspires. She is consumed with bitter, impotent hatred of rich people like the Dalloways. And she burns with hopeless lust for their young daughter. Her culture, like Leonard Bast's, is a failure. She plays the violin, but, Virginia Woolf tells us, quote, the sound was excruciating. She had no ear. Most degrading of all, she seeks comfort in Christianity, forfeiting her intellectual integrity in return for religious emotionalism. Virginia Woolf could scarcely have effected a clearer dissociation of herself from Miss Kilman. Brilliant. Now, what I want to say is, I haven't really changed my mind <laughs> as a result of reading all this, Wolf, but as an older and I hope wiser reader, you realise that that snobbery that you mentioned, John, is the result of artistic honesty in one level. She is trying to achieve an exact representation of the world as she saw it, and she tends not to self-edit in that regard, I don't know what you think, Mark and Sally. I mean, okay, so in terms of Jacob's Room, um, the parts that I'm now drawn to as an older and wiser reader, like yourself, like your good self, um, are in fact the parts around Jacob that Mark was referring to earlier, the, the, the marks and the commas, so to speak, of, of the lives that swirl around him. And when I went back to find those parts, um, that's what I held, actually. They were, they were my remnants, in a, in a sense, at the end of reading it straight through in about 24 hours. So, so Jacob, in a sense, for me, is missing. Jacob is always missing. I mean, mm. that's the point. Jacob is a character who is missing from everyone's lives. Um, he's missing from his mother's lives, life and lives, because his mother has many lives, too. And all that there is in place of Jacob are remnants of feeling, and those remnants of feeling are then turned into snatches of words and letters, 
and tears and stains and marks and objects that are dropped and fallen and so forth and so on. Um, in Wolf's feeling life, I guess, to be a slightly somewhat pretentious, you know, it's things that are often dropped or left behind. Um, so I, I kept coming back, in fact, to the people around Jacob, and most of them are, a lot of them are, you know, servants or, or, yeah. mm. or you know, um, she, there's a lot been said about Virginia Woolf's relationship to the lower classes yeah. and to the servants, but she observes small habits brilliantly yeah. mm. and I with great tenderness think, and I with great tenderness. Is much less disfigured if, if, yeah. if any of her books are really disfigured by it, as you say Andy I yeah. think there's a she's also fantastically rude about some of the people who are Jacob's equals as well mm -hmm. yes absolutely mm -hmm. scathing mm -hmm. yes I agree with that I found that much more present coming back to it actually mm -hmm. this sort of relates to what we were talking mm -hmm. about with her presence as a personality mm -hmm. in the book which comes and kind of comes and goes mm -hmm. but if she feels that she needs to say pass a waspish judgment mm -hmm. She, she rewards herself by doing so. <laughs> We're going to have to um, wind up, but maybe I just, just mm. Sally and, and Mark, sort of just last, last mm. final thoughts. I mean, you'll, you'll read it again, Mark? Many times, <laughs> I will. Mm. Um, have you got anything, any other bits that you wanted to, to throw in as a sort of uh, in the, oh, you, uh, you'll love this bit? Well, I was going to throw in something about the ending, but that would start a whole mm. new hour's conversation. <laughs> so go away and read it yourself. And, so you're leaving the issue of whether... The open... The, the, yeah. the open I, question. Oh, the open question. Like the open question. Yeah, yeah. We, we can have an argument about it Brilliant. later. Have a fist fight outside in the foyer. Sally? Um, I think what Mark said about the way in which you read it, I'm interested in ways in which you can read it. I think you can wake in the night and just mm. open a page. And I've just done that now. And I, the character of Florinda, who's, you know, the... the <laughs> Doesn't get mm. such a good... Uh, but yeah. there's so much tenderness and yeah. pathos yeah, around yeah. the character of um, Florinda. One sentence. Jake was watching her from the window. Then he saw her turning up Greek Street upon another man's arm. And that's the end of the paragraph. And you're, you know, I'm... I was devastated by that. Um, but yeah. yeah, so. Well, I'm going to have to do the outro. I'm just going to. One sentence which I just love. The strange thing about life is that though the nature of it must have been apparent to everyone for hundreds of years, no one has left any adequate account of it. <laughs> <laughs> that seems a good point to end. Thanks to Mark Haddon, to Sally Bailey, to our producer, Matt Hall, um, and thanks again to our sponsors, Unbound. Thanks to our lovely hosts, uh, Blackwell's Bookshop in Oxford. Hannah Chinnery and Bethan Kitchen and all the staff for making our visit so pleasurable. And of course, thanks to our lovely audience who joined us here tonight. You can get in touch with us at Backlisted Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Backlisted Pod, and on the Unbound page, uh, unbound.com forward slash backlisted. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a fortnight. Thanks, everyone. Thank you very much. You can choose to listen to Backlisted with or without adverts. If you prefer to listen to it without adverts, you can join us on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Backlisted, where you also get bonus content of two episodes of Locklisted, the podcast where we talk about the books and films and music that we've been listening to over the last uh, couple of weeks.